Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to a more perfect union. I'm Chris Wolf, and joining me this week, our roundtable of radio regulars, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalia Linos, from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, our station manager, Peter Jay, and my co-host, Nick Remesong. But most importantly, we are privileged today to be joined by Peter Canellis. Canellis is author of a fantastic book that's today ever more relevant to our journey to seek a more perfect union. The book is called The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, America's judicial hero. Harlan, as you may know, was an associate justice on the Supreme Court in the late 1800s and early 1900s. His famous dissenting opinions eventually transformed American law, but only long after his death, when they were embraced by the majority of justices on the Supreme Court from the 1950s. Harlan's vision and logic became the law of the land, at least until this year. But besides the judicial impact, Harlan has a compelling personal story as well. He grew up in Kentucky as an owner of enslaved people, and his judicial career was perhaps helped by a once enslaved man who grew up alongside him and who may have been his half-brother. Peter Canellis, the author, has been fascinated by Justice Harlan since his days at Columbia Law School some decades ago. Peter, welcome to A More Perfect Union. Thank you so much, Chris. And uh, Peter is the guest of our regular panelist, State Rep. Jeff Roy. So, Jeff, let me throw the ball to you. Well, thank you, uh, Chris. And uh, I'm really excited uh, to be uh, part of this uh, show today and to uh, uh, to talk to Peter Canellis about uh, John Marshall Holland and uh, the history of that case and uh, what led up to it, and also to talk about some of the ramifications of his work on uh, the Supreme Court uh, today. Uh, I think that uh, what's going on with the Supreme Court today uh, is a good setting uh, for a reminder that this book uh, is a, a refreshing tale about uh, you know uh, somebody who uh, really changed American law and how he did it and uh, uh, his background, his education, uh, and, and his experience. And it shows uh, I think how one man's willingness to stand up to his colleagues uh, reverberated for a century uh, until his dissenting views, and keep in mind, he was always on the opposite side of the decisions in these cases, they became uh, the law of the land. And uh, it's a fascinating period of history uh, that is covered in this book. And, and I'm glad that you brought up that uh, that uh, Peter has been thinking about uh, Justice Holland since his days as law school, because I had in my notes today, uh, I remember reading uh, one of the paragraphs from the dissent, and it, and it was like this. Uh, there is in this country no superior dominant ruling class. 
Our constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. And I still recall the inspiration that I drew from reading that paragraph as a law student in the, in the 1980s. And I was uh, absolutely fascinated that uh, that sparked Peter's interest uh, at Columbia Law School uh, three decades ago. So uh, I'd like to throw it over to you, Peter. And if you could begin by telling us why you chose to write about uh, uh, John Marshall Holland and, and tell us some more about the man in your book. Thank you so much. Uh, you're, you're entirely right that I was inspired by exactly the, the lines and those and several others uh, in Highland's Descents when I was in law school. It was incredibly striking to me in the 1980s uh, to learn about somebody who had been on the court 100 years ago and was completely and utterly at odds with his colleagues. You know, he was the lone dissenter. He was the outlier. They barely paid attention to him. And yet there we were in the 1980s, and he was right in the mainstream of American law. So my interest in the book was to, to look into what it was that gave him the wisdom to sort of see the future as clearly as he did, and, and why he was different from all of his colleagues, why I was able to see things so differently from all of his colleagues. So that was the starting point for the book. People often ask, you know, well, Harlan's significance, what is it? Why should we regard Harlan as such an important figure? Uh, and the answer to that is that, you know, during the time that he was on the court, which was 1877 to 1911, two big things happened in the United States. One is it was the Gilded Age. It was the time of uh, historic income inequality. You know, the, the rich became richer than they had ever been richer before. Uh, they built houses that were based on the, the castles of European kings. And at the same time, uh, it, many workers, immigrant workers, domestic workers, were making such low salaries that they were living, you know, four or five people to a room because they couldn't afford anything else, even though these were all working people. At the same time during that era, it was the start of segregation. There were all of these very important civil rights victories that happened in the Civil War. And in the 12 years after the Civil War, Congress was really, really committed to enforcing civil rights. So you look back on those eras and you say, okay, well, we now know what was important in those eras. And what happened? What, how did we get off on the wrong path? Well, the answer is it was not the fault of the presidents of that era. There were a lot of them and a lot of them were not particularly strong, but you know, it wasn't really their fault. Congress at every important juncture did step up. It was you know, not stepping up perfectly. There were plenty of years when, when legislation was blocked, but in 1875, Congress passed a civil rights law that said that uh, Black people should have fair and equal access to transportation, to places of entertainment, to, to uh, restaurants and inns. The Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional. The 15th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution guarantees voting rights. State of Alabama passed a constitution that said that um, all uh, descendants of Confederate veterans grandfathered in as uh, as voters, everyone else is subject to all these rigorous tests as simple as like the polling person thinks you're a bad character and can reject you. Supreme Court said, well, this is an attempt to defeat the 15th Amendment and disenfranchise black people. And also, by the way, a lot of poor whites, but they said there was nothing they could do. So they, they uh, said it was a political question and uh, declined to take action. 
then we find out in the epic case of Plessy v. Ferguson that the U.S. Supreme Court endorsed the separate but equal doctrine, the legal architecture of segregation. In all three of those cases, the common thread, John Marshall Harlan was the sole dissenter. On the economic side, as all those tremendous injustices were happening in society and, and uh, there was violence in the United States around uh, economic deprivation issues, uh, Congress stepped up, passed the Sherman Antitrust Act to be able to break up monopoly businesses that set wages and prices, but the Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional. Congress stepped up to say, we're going to pass an income tax, which is a lot fairer than the tariff system, which had funded the government before, because under tariffs, you know, the cup of coffee that had the, you know, one cent premium on it when it was imported from overseas, that one cent was the same if you were John D. Rockefeller or if you were an immigrant worker, uh, not the same percentage, the same penny. Uh, so an income tax is a much fairer way of funding the government. It was declared unconstitutional. Then in the case of Lochner v. New York, the Supreme Court stepped in and said that state legislatures can't pass laws to protect workers, that all labor legislation was per se unconstitutional. What happened in those three cases? The common thread, John Marshall Harlan dissented in all three of them. So what the book goes on to talk about is how those dissents planted a seed uh, for the future. And it was not some perfect line you know, it required a lot of other action, it required a lot of other people doing so. But at all these crucial motion, moments, people were reading Harlan's dissents. That includes uh, Thurgood Marshall when he, he and the, the team of lawyers from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund was challenging segregation. There are stories of them sitting at a round table and Thurgood Marshall standing up and, and reading Harlan's dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson. Some of those lines that Jeff was inspired by you know, the Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. There is no caste here. That's, that's Thurgood Marshall inspiring his troops to overturn segregation, which did happen with Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. Same time, a young congressman, Cordell Hull, in the early part of the 20th century, used Harlan's dissent in the income tax case to sit on the well of the House and talk about how incredibly unfair this decision was, goad on the House to pass a constitutional amendment that ultimately restored the income tax as a fair way of funding the government. This happened in many, many other instances as well. Uh, and it shows that, you know, these dissents are not crying in the wilderness. Uh, they are, in fact, a, a roadmap to a different future if you have the patience and the wisdom and the vision to sort of see that future. You know, I'm going to jump in and and say that first, Jeff and I both reached out to you um, and I wanted to uh, make it known that Jeff has much more gravitas than I do <laughs> because he was able to secure you to come on. And thank you so much, Peter, for joining us. Jeff mentioned your book uh, in one of our sessions when we were talking about the Supreme Court. Uh, and being the academic that I am, I, I, I ran out and bought the book. And I must admit that your book on Harlan has now reached number two on my all-time list, not just because of the law, but because of all of the other social and economic constructs that you build around what made Harlan. Um, and the reason that that resonates with me is because I was born and raised in Kentucky. I know Harlan County. I know the Harlands as a family because they still exist in Kentucky. Uh, and it struck me uh, 
when you brought up the issue of his mulatto brother. And that, to me, also is a piece of history that I think contributed to not only Harlan and his family, but also to the times. And uh, let me point out just one thing and have you comment on this, if you don't mind. I did not know until I read your book that Plessy versus Ferguson was actually a huge mistake on the part of the black community, that they had won two cases, one in Texas and one in Louisiana, that federally set up the right to uh, be able to have mixed accommodations. In other words, if you were black and you were going from state to state, you could sit anywhere you wanted to on the train. The Louisiana law was much more restrictive. And after those two federal cases were won, that's when the Louisiana law said, "Okay, if it's just in the state of Louisiana, we can segregate you. And the court didn't have any issue with that at first. And then black folks. uh, And I think this is an important part of your book. And it, it also has some relevance to today. Black folks decided between the light-skinned Blacks and the dark-skinned Blacks that, no, we cannot have this stand. We've got to challenge the state law. And it was the light-skinned Blacks that pushed the issue of taking this to federal court to challenge Louisiana law. Can you talk about just the introspective piece there? And how did you pick that up uh, in your research? It's a it's a very interesting point because uh, Robert Harlan, who you mentioned was the mixed race brother, presumed to be the brother, although there's also been a, a DNA test on descendants that has discouraged some of that. But in, in his time, presumed to be the brother of John Marshall Harlan. And they had a relationship. Uh, so, you know, they didn't know the DNA. Uh, I think they regarded themselves as being related. Robert Harlan uh, was a skeptic of Plessy v. Ferguson, as was uh, Frederick Douglass and other uh, black leaders at that at that time, because they sensed that the Supreme Court uh, had had now uh, turned so strongly against the black community that challenging this case would just result in a ruling that would have tremendous ongoing negative consequences. And that's essentially what happened. You know, the Supreme Court put its its stamp of approval on separate but equal, and that unleashed the forces of segregation. What you were talking about before in light-skinned versus dark-skinned uh, is a you know a bit of a sad and difficult kind of coda to that case because right now, you know, we sort of celebrate Homer Plessy as a hero and the people who brought that case as being righteous. You know, there was a the state of Louisiana pardoned Homer Plessy just this year. And you know, it's a it's seen as, you know, he's seen as a civil rights hero, but the context for the case was a little different in that it was very heavily funded by wealthy mixed race Creoles in uh, Louisiana who had always lived as an upper class community. Uh, and they happened to have uh, mixed race blood from various places, from Spain, but also from Haiti and uh, and through Haiti from Africa. And um they suddenly found themselves uh, victims of this Louisiana law that said, essentially, if you had, you know, even one eighth uh, black blood, you had to sit in the colored car instead of the white car. So I think the case came out of the anger uh, that these um, uh, upper class Creoles had it suddenly being classified as second class citizens. Now, that anger was real. Uh, At the same time, 
they also, and they were fighting for an important civil rights principle. Uh, at the same time, uh, they also were something of an elite whose concerns were more to try to get a decision that said, uh, you know, one of their big arguments was that it's wrong to let a, a, a railroad employee determine somebody's race. Uh, and so that's why they chose Homer Plessy, who was only one eighth black and looked very white. And he kind of came in and said, you know, by the way, I'm, I'm one eighth black. And they were like, OK, we're, we'll put you in the in the car with the colored folk. And um, that uh, precipitated the precipitated the case. So so there were some people pushing that case that were actually hoping that the verdict would be not destroying the separate but equal and giving everybody equal access, but at the very least forbidding railroad employees from uh, determining that Creoles were black. Which leads me to, and I don't want to dominate the conversation, but then my next point, I think, brings us up to today, which is that when you look at the series of dissents from Harlan and you look at the case law that the Supreme Court was dealing with, they were actually in the process of destroying the individual rights, if you will, of the Constitution for the sake of giving the states the ability to not only discriminate and segregate, uh, but also for the state to determine which particular controls they wanted over individuals, whether it was voting rights, whether it was economics, whether it was labor. And here we are in a second gilded age when the rich keep getting richer, when the dis economic disparity is at probably even a greater uh, gap than it was back in the 1920s. And yet we're looking at, again, the Supreme Court that is dismantling the rights of individuals. And in particular, let's start with women, uh, because I have postulated that the overturning of Roe v. Wade just the tip of the iceberg. And that really what we're after is that Roe v. Wade is an indication that we are attacking the rights of individuals and especially the right of privacy, because as, as was said in the 1883 case, uh, I'm sorry, not the 1883. Yes, in the 1883 case, the court seems to think that if a state does not mention race, that they can create laws that seem disparaging, but they let it go because, well, they are taking away voting rights, but they're not doing it because of race because they said they weren't doing it because of race. We're taking rights away from women, not because we are trying to subjugate women, but we're trying to protect the unborn. Just a quick reminder, we are talking with Peter Canellos. Uh, Canellos is author of a fantastic book that's very relevant to our journey toward a more perfect union. It's called The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, America's judicial hero. Can you comment about the parallels then between now and then? I think that the parallels between now and then are along some of the lines that you describe. We are in a time of tremendous income inequality. I think the highest income inequality since that era. I, I'm not sure it's higher, but we can, you know, parse the numbers at various points. Um, we also are uh, in a time when, uh, you know, large large groups within the within the population uh, feel as though rights and laws that have been designed to protect them have been uh, overruled by the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court in general is more conservative than the country, which I think was absolutely the case in 
uh, the time when Harlan was serving. One thing I, I had always held out hope for is that outside of the abortion issue, uh, the justices that have been appointed, the conservative justices have been appointed in recent years, would turn out to be different figures than we expect, many of us expected them to be, or the, you know, the confirmation hearing suggested that they were. Uh, just because the history of the Supreme Court is that people surprised their sponsors when they went on the court. So Harlan himself, because he was from Kentucky, and because he came from a slave-owning family, and because he had been the Kentucky Attorney General challenging martial law imposed by the federal government, uh, which had in part, you know, uh, served to the benefit of uh, enslaved people, he was held in deep suspicion, even though for many years he had converted and he took a strong civil rights position. He was held in suspicion when he was nominated for the Supreme Court because of his past stances. And yet he turned out to be, you know, and, and there were all these northerners, northern legal types who had been abolitionists because it was a fairly easy position to take if you were a New York or, or, or Boston intellectual to be in favor of abolition. They were in favor of abolition at a time when Harlan was not. And they, uh, they were very skeptical of him, but he turned out to be a far greater and more committed enforcer of civil rights than they were. So you would think that some of the justices who were appointed uh, to be conservatives by Donald Trump or George W. Bush would turn out to be outside of the highly politicized abortion issue, more uh, open-minded on cases. And I, I really hope that up until this term, and you know what we saw on this term, unfortunately, was just uh, the conservatives kind of running the table in a fairly ruthless way. Uh, the abortion decision, you know, may or may not have been a surprise, but what was particularly offensive and difficult about it is that it was five to four. You know, when the Supreme Court overturned Plessy v. Ferguson in the 1950s, they worked desperately hard to have a nine to nothing opinion. They anticipated that people would be fighting the end of segregation. There'd be a white backlash in a lot of states, and they wanted to be unambiguous. You know, we are nine justices. We all view the law the same way. There is no turning back from this position. On an issue that is every bit as contentious on abortion, you know, as you essentially had five conservative justices who said, we don't care what everyone else thinks, you know, we're going to push this through even by one scant vote, even though knowing that by, because it's a five to four decision, it's going to make everybody angrier and lead to more politicization, they, they didn't care about it. They showed they, they weren't concerned for the effect on the country. They weren't concerned for the effect on the court's reputation. You know, these are the issues that, that Chief Justice John Roberts, who may have had problems with Roe v. Wade, you know, he felt like it was not necessary to overturn Roe v. Wade at this moment, and, uh, and, and his overriding concern was for the reputation of the court. These other justices are just out there pushing their political agenda. And then we saw on gun rights, on prayer, on limiting the scope of the EPA, a, a, a kind of doctrinaire, uh, ideological, conservative, rubber stamp kind of position. And among the questions that raises is, why, you know, why do we even need a Supreme Court if these positions are going to be so prescribed? You know, it's like the whole reason you have human beings making some of these decisions is that you want them to consider 
factors like the long-term effect on the country, the, the, the reliance that people have on long-standing precedents in the court, you know, attempt to, to, uh, to produce decisions that tamp down politics rather than inflame politics. Those are all kind of human judicial considerations. And they're all very present, by the way, in Harlan's dissents and even in some of his majority opinions, a concern for how the court's decisions are going to shape the future. In Harlan's case, it was because the Dred Scott decision, you know, he was not strongly pro-slavery at all before the Civil War. And in fact, all the evidence suggests that he was in favor of an, a gradual uh, uh, abolition. But being in Kentucky, he realized that, you know, his biggest fear was a civil war and avoiding a civil war. And so they tried to produce all kinds of political compromises to forestall the civil war until the Supreme Court overreached in Dred Scott, declared that black people would never have any rights under the Constitution, even free black people. And it went so far that, you know, all the compromises suddenly went out the window. So Harlan had this personal sense, you know, he had a dread of the civil war. He knew Kentucky would be the battlefield. He knew it would be destroyed. He knew what would happen when the Supreme Court gets it wrong or the Supreme Court takes a contentious, unyielding stance on something that is a matter of tremendous disagreement within the country. And, and he built that thinking into all of his future decisions. What we're seeing today is a lack of that thinking, a lack of concern for the future of the country, for the effect of these decisions on real people. It's a kind of doctrinaire, rubber stamp presentation at least as we've seen in this term. And, you know, people can grow and change and nobody's passing, you know, uh, moral judgment on uh, the justices who've been, been behind some of these positions. And I think they feel like they're doing the right thing and they feel like they're justified in their uh, ideology and in their approach to, to the constitution. But right now it feels like there was kind of a conservative Federalist Society slate of positions that these people are just, these, these conservative justices are just rubber stamping uh, on the court. Peter, I'm going to jump in. I'm maybe the most removed from law. You know, I'm an epidemiologist who thinks very much about, you know, the present and Roe v. Wade, obviously, as a public health issue. But what you just said to me, to the, this idea of consensus, like I don't know the history. Is that something that in the past, it, you know, has that been a goal? And then so my question to you is, you know, what about the other proposals that people are talking about, about term limits, about expanding the court? Like, what do you think implications of those would be? Or is it more to push towards consensus kind of rather than, um, you know, what are sort of some of the historical lessons, I guess? And I apologize because I'm, you know, I'm not someone who studies the law and it seems, and, and maybe as one of the younger uh, members of this panel also maybe don't have as much of the historical context. What did you say? Uh, slightly, slightly younger. I'm, I'm not, I'm not claiming to be young, Jeff. Well, the history, the history does have lessons, but, but the lessons are a little complicated in that, yes, uh, throughout its history, the court has put a premium on consensus and traditionally chief justices have wanted to have decisions that are not divisive decisions that, you know, in which the court comes together and can can combine the wisdom of the justices into something that the country will accept because it's broadly supported. Now, the exception to that, though, and uh, some people protect defender, defenders of the Dobbs decision will come forward and say, yes, well, of course, in Harlan's time, consensus meant going along with segregation. Consensus meant going along with uh, the removal of civil rights. So, 
Harlan has many conservative admirers who feel like he was a man who stood on principle. You know, he stood up for the true meaning of the Constitution at a time when others, the conservatives of that era, uh, were, were deviating from what was the plain language and intent of the Constitution. And they, they regard Harlan as a hero for, for having the courage to stand up for what he believed in and defy consensus. And you could even say now on the liberal side too, we know now the effect that Harlan's words had on the black community and, in, and on inspiring people like Thurgood Marshall. There was, in my mind, there was a huge difference historically between having a unanimous opinion with Plessy v. Ferguson and having one dissenter, even one dissenter. You know, it kind of lights a flame that can, can last through the decades. And, and, can, and it told the black community that there's at least one white jurist who was able to see things through their eyes. And that was noticed immediately. You know, Plessy v. Ferguson was not a high profile case, unlike the civil rights cases of 1883, because the country expected by then, just like everyone in the black community seemed to realize, you know, the court's not going to favor uh, the black community here. Uh, but the fact that Harlan issued this powerful dissent was front page news in every black newspaper read aloud in many black churches, read aloud at memorial services for Harlan a few years later in black churches with an all black audience and became a source of inspiration for generations of, of black lawyers to challenge uh, segregation. And I think the fact that like one white person could be persuaded, one white jurist made a big difference because you know you can imagine in the 1940s, you know, Thurgood Marshall had to go to these towns and, and recruit plaintiffs to challenge segregation in things like state universities. And they knew the Ku Klux Klan was right there. I mean, it was literally they were putting their families in mortal danger. And he had to have something to be able to say, look, this is this could happen. You know, there could be a good result here. We're not just doing this to stand on principle. We're doing it because we think we can change the law. And I think Harlan's opinions gave him that confidence. So the, the issue on consensus is, yes, consensus is very important and an important part of American jurisprudence, but there are limits to consensus. That's part of it. In terms of the expansion of the court, the historical precedent is, is Franklin Roosevelt's uh, a policy to add a justice for every justice who was over the age of 70, which came about at a time when another very conservative court in the 1930s was striking down all these New Deal laws. Uh, and that idea, that 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 uh, proposal by Roosevelt came about at a time when he had historically high majorities, Democratic majorities in both the House and Senate. But even with historically high majorities, there was a lot of doubt and skepticism because uh, it felt like you were sort of tinkering with the constitutional mach uh, machinery in that way. I would say, Natalia, there's also a pragmatic case to be made against adding and expanding the Supreme Court, which is to say, could set off uh, a tradition where, as Republicans and Democrats shift control of Congress and the White House, they'll make manipulating the Supreme Court, you know, part of the part of the deal. You know, like, okay, Democrats will expand it now to have a more liberal court. And when Republicans take over, they'll expand it again or come up with some scheme to force the retirements of older justices or something like that to, to give themselves more picks. And it, it it serves to undermine that higher purpose of the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court itself has undermined that purpose by allowing politics to sort of take root in its chambers. And so you can make a case that, you know, the majesty of the Supreme Court has already been damaged. But, you know... I think a, a wise position would be to hope that there could be some sort of an internal 
backlash on the court and that one or two changes in the lineup could make a difference, you know, giving Roberts, for example, more allies in the center or something like that, that that might be a better course than uh, uh, than than remaking the court. You know, uh, Peter, I, I want to jump in. Uh, this conversation is absolutely uh, riveting. And um, and I do have a question for my dear friend, Michael, that uh, I want you to answer after after Peter does, because you said uh, that this was the second most uh, uh, favorite book of yours. Uh, I've been sitting here waiting for you to reveal to us what it was book number one. And I'm sure Chris Wolf is uh, hoping that it's his book. But uh, in any event, I do want you to answer that question before we uh, leave the show today. But I, I also uh, feel that your book is so critical and so important uh, for this particular time. And I have a couple of questions in my mind. Why did it take so long for the story of John Marshall Holland uh, to come out? Because Obviously, he's a bright star in the civil rights movement, and it's a story that truly needed to be told, and you, you told it beautifully, and, and I, I thank you for that. But I'm just sitting here saying, why did it take so long? It's, you know, uh, he left well, the court in, in 1911. Just a reminder, we're talking with Peter Canellos, author of a very relevant book for today's discussion about a more perfect union. It's called The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, America's judicial hero, one of the, perhaps the Supreme Court's most distinguished uh, justices. And it, took, it took so long for several reasons. One is uh, during the segregation era, uh, extending from you know, uh, 1911 to, to 1954, Harlan was forgotten because uh, his views were so out of vogue. You know, he was considered a kind of eccentric exception, as Felix Frankfurter once called him, Justice Felix Frankfurter once called him. Uh, you know, he was so far out of the mainstream that people didn't pay attention to him, uh, even as, in terms of his uh, judicial legacy. You know, there were a handful of exceptions, as there always are, but um, but he was his reputation was very neglected. And in the early 1950s, there was even a, a history of the Supreme Court under Chief Justice Melville Fuller, which was most of the time that Harlan was serving, that was written that didn't mention any of the race cases, <laughs> you know. So uh, Harlan was was forgotten because the issues that he had put forward were so neglected during that period. I also think that when you go 40 years after somebody's death and then try to pick up the trail, it's a lot harder. So he does not have a whole lot of letters and papers, for example, to study. You know, there are uh, many public figures who, as soon as they die, their their uh, papers go to the Library of Congress and they they have a real, you know, this tremendous scholarly interest. In Harlan's case, there was one uh, academic who had control over some of his papers but didn't do anything with it, essentially, for the four decades and five decades. Then there was um, a separate issue afterwards about the Robert Harlan issue, because the relationship between John and Robert Harlan really is an important facet in this story. And what it suggests is that personal experience, in, in John Harlan's case, personal experience with a person of color who has was born enslaved, but when his rights were defended, became wealthy, powerful, the richest man in the Harlan family. And when you see that happen, it, it changes your perspective on things. So in, in John Marshall Harlan's case, when he was serving on the Supreme Court, all these Northern justices with their perfect civil rights records and things like that, fell prey to the idea 
in some cases that there was racial inferiority and, you know, black people weren't prepared to step forward and uh, take the burdens of citizenship. Other cases that it, slavery itself had so burdened them that it would take many generations for people to bounce out of slavery. Well, John Harlan saw Robert Harlan and realized that, you know, here's a man born enslaved who's a, a wealthy, you know, uh, leader, in fact, ele an elected representative to uh, the Ohio legislature, um, but, but, but a, a real national figure. So uh, the Robert Harlan story is crucial to the John Harlan story, but that wasn't known at all because black history was so neglected. It's only been in the last 10 years that black newspapers have been digitized. And it's through that that you can, first of all, realize how prominent Robert Harlan was. Uh, the New York World, which was not a black newspaper, uh, referred to Robert Harlan as second only to Frederick Douglass in influence in the black community. That's how important Robert Harlan was. We also know from those same uh, black newspapers that John Marshall Harlan's dissents were a regular topic of conversation in the black community, totally ignored in the white community, but they were frequently discussed in the black community, which, which provides some of that link between what Harlan was doing and the civil rights movement of the middle 20th century. And so, so there were some important reasons why Harlan's story was neglected. But, you know, the other the other piece of this uh, conversation um, is just how important the Supreme Court is to American life and the length of time that these justices uh, get to serve. In Holland's case, he served, uh, if I'm correct, 34 years on the court. And that's a tremendous amount of influence that an individual can have. I, I happen to be a William O. Douglas fan and know that he served for 39 years on the court. And, uh, you know, the, he served from 1939 to 1975. It's amazing what happens in the history of the country in the span of 30 or 40 years. And you have people who are there for, for generations that get to, um, you know, dictate just what the law is through uh, through their decisions. And um, I think it's underrepresented in political life uh, in the United States. And I'm, I'm so glad that uh, I think it was uh, uh, Woodward and Bernstein in their book, The Brethren, that finally took the veil off of the Supreme Court and people began to see inside what's happening. And, and, and books like yours give us an inside look at what goes on in the minds of these folks and uh, the tremendous influence they can have. And I'm so hoping that we see more like this because uh, I think it's an underrated uh, piece of political life that uh, people don't understand. And when you elect a president, uh, one of the most consequential things that that president does is give a lifetime appointment to somebody who's going to make these decisions. And in the case of Donald Trump, he handed out three lifetime appointments in just his four years of service. And I, that, I don't think people truly understand that or uh, understand the, uh, the impact of what these folks could do. And uh, I was curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, and uh, on two score, one is that, um what you mentioned about Donald Trump getting three appointments, you know, Jimmy Carter was also a one-term president and got no appointments, for example. So, you know, by virtue of, in some sense, 
fate, I guess, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died when she died and that uh, uh, Mitch McConnell made the politically daring but also sort of dubious decision to hold that Scalia appointment for a year. You know, Trump, who was elected having lost the popular vote and, and through a series of, you know, razor thin margins in, in swing states, got to shape the court for a generation. And that does show the vagaries of some of these appointments. In terms of your view about the importance of the Supreme Court on American history, I, I came through researching this book to have a, a greater appreciation of that. Uh, you know, as I said, when we were starting our conversation, you know, the history of that period is more a history of the Supreme Court than a history of the presidency. Uh, we uh, today digest history through uh, the presidency because it makes for a compelling narrative to see one person contending with all the issues of the day. You know, it's, it, it's an exciting book. It's why publishers want a lot of presidential biographies. But if you wrote a presidential biography of, you know, Grover Cleveland or uh, Benjamin Harrison or Chester Arthur, uh, James Garfield, or many of the presidents who served during the same time that Harlan was on the court, Rutherford Hayes, I don't think you would get anything like a sense of the kind of impact that the Supreme Court had on the country during that period. I mean, there was nothing Rutherford Hayes did, or I guess you could say Rutherford Hayes, you know, he took the troops out of the South, which was a product of his, uh, unusual ascension to the presidency, and that was a monumental uh, act, but it sort of happened uh, uh, not as a matter of Hayes's fiat. It was sort of a, uh, something that happened as part of the deal to put Hayes in, into the White House. But, and, and there was also, uh, you know, many historians will come and say that it was, it was coming to a time when it was going to be just untenable to keep the troops in the South. But, but other than that, there weren't any, um, uh, you know, individual consequential decisions by any of those presidents uh, that shaped American life the way these Supreme Court decisions did. I'd like to chime in also with a, an extension of that in, in our modern era. Uh, I'm getting a sense from Justice Thomas's recent comments, you know, he's viewing the court as being more activist or even worse, proactivist, that is, uh, my learning of the court was always that they review case law, they look at constitutionality, supposedly objectively, and say, yes, it does or does not fit the Constitution. And here we have a justice saying, well, now that we've done this, let's take a look at birth control. Let's take a look at, and just the phrase, let's take a look at these things, uh, says to me that the court, in his mind, is on the move in some way. And I don't think that's the role of the justices in, in my takeaway. That's an excellent point. And I, I have uh, thought, thought many of the same things uh, about Thomas's uh, concurring opinion in the uh, Dobbs case. Um, you know, it was sort of a mystery. I, I am a senior editor, managing editor for Enterprise at Politico now. And uh, when we uh, released the draft of Alito's opinion, uh, that, that had been leaked uh, outside of the Supreme Court uh, a month or two before the decision. One of the big surprises was, why is Alito writing this opinion? Because what happens is, when the Chief Justice is not in the majority, the Senior Justice chooses who writes the opinion, who writes the majority opinion for the court. So 
given that it was sort of known that Roberts was not, it was, it was known on that draft opinion that Roberts was not part of that draft opinion. So Thomas was a senior justice. So you want to say, well, here's this big historic breakthrough for conservatives uh, defeating Roe v. Wade. Why would Clarence Thomas not choose to write the opinion himself? And the reason was he was too conservative even for the other conservatives, right? He wanted to go further. They wanted to sort of have a decision that tried to a little bit reassure people like, well, this is just about abortion. It's not about things like um, a mixed race re- marriage and contraceptions and, and, and uh, gay marriage. Uh, they wanted to sort of sound a reassuring note. And, and Clarence Thomas did not. Clarence Thomas wanted, you know, in fact, to send his own message that he thought these things should be uh, tackled. Uh, uh, he didn't mention the interracial marriage. We mentioned um, uh, other precedents like uh, contraception and stuff. And I think I think that you're right that his language was alarming too, because you know here we hear all these justices in their confirmation hearing saying we can't possibly comment on anything until we see the facts. You know we're here to judge cases. We have to wait. You know we're not going to off, offer any advanced opinions uh, on on what we think. And here's Clarence Thomas saying, you know, bring this on, you know, let's go, let's, uh, let's rethink gay marriage. You know, it's just um, kind of, kind of brazen uh, on his part. And I think that, you know, in some sense, it only fuels the scrutiny on Thomas through his wife about his ties to uh, conservatives uh, and, and the money that is coming in from conservatives to the uh, Thomas family. (laughs) Um, uh, and I think that's, uh, that, that's, that's justified given his role as sort of a, a cheerleader for their causes. Uh, you know, you have to wonder why, you know, what effect his, his wife's activism might have on those opinions. And on that point, Peter, it, it um, concerns me, and I'd like to get your thoughts on, uh, has the Supreme Court now suffered an irreparable damage uh, to its reputation and standing amongst the general public? And secondly, uh, who leaked the uh, Alito opinion? Who who is what? Sorry. Who who leaked the draft? Oh, <laughs> well, they, uh, <laughs> there's absolutely positively no way I would ever comment on that. Uh, but um, the uh, <laughs> the issue about irreparable damage, if you're referring to the substance of the Dobbs decision as opposed to the leak, uh, I think that you know, in some people's minds, it's irreparable, and in other people's minds, it's it's repairable. So I think much like people said after the Bush v. Gore decision, which appeared to be a very politicized decision, giving George uh, W. Bush the presidency, that there was an irreparable uh, damage to the Supreme Court. I think it it was irreparable in terms of the way people viewed the court. And maybe some of the partisan fights over the court were kind of shaped by the awareness that the conservative appointees uh, on the court during Bush v. Gore, you know, essentially awarded the presidency to Bush on, on very dubious grounds. And that showed that, you know, this really isn't a matter of putting the most distinguished jurists together and having them come up with a just result. This is a matter of putting your own ideological, you know, confederates on the court. And, um, and that's true on both sides, too. Let's, 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 let's be honest, there have been litmus tests for liberal justices, too, uh, over this time. Uh, it hasn't been quite at the concerted agenda that you see discussed with the Federalist Society, but there is a parallel society, the American Constitution Society, and, uh, you know, you also have Democratic presidents saying that they'll only appoint justices who are going to defend the, uh, uh, the right to abortion. So it's happened on both sides politically. And I think, I think you can say some of that is, is the, 
result of, of Bush v. Gore. And so the people who said there were irreparable harms are, were probably right. I think the people who said that there were irreparable harms from Dobbs are probably right, just like the people who said there were irreparable harms from Dred Scott and other cases have, were right. But, you know, the question is, it's irreparable to some people, but it may be a little more repairable in the larger scheme of things. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion so far, and we're going to put a pin in it for today and pick it up again next week on a part two of this discussion of a more perfect union with our special guest, Peter Canellis. Thank you so much, Peter, for joining us so far, and we'll look forward to continuing this conversation with you next week. If you'd like to weigh in on our discussions, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. If you enjoyed our discussion, please let us know. If you disagree, all the more reason to let us know. You can also share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online. Just visit our website, wfpr.fm. For Peter Canales, our special guest, Dr. Natalia Linos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, our representative on Beacon Hill, Jeff Roy, along with station manager Peter Jay and my co-host, Nick Remesong. I'm Chris Wolfe. Thanks for listening and join us again next week for the next part of our conversation with Peter Canales and on our journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.